Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Today's Sunday Morning Podcast is sponsored by Prudential. What would you do if you had to choose between saving for your kid's college or your own retirement? With the cost of a four-year degree estimated to be over $200,000 in 18 years, it's a real decision many families must make. At Prudential, we want to make sure your biggest financial goals never have to come at the expense of one another. Because financial wellness means planning for their future and yours. Get started today at prudential.com slash plan for both. Prudential Insurance Company of America, Newark, New Jersey. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. A college education has long been a big part of the American dream, particularly for young people raised in poverty who were the first in their family ever to attend. But in a cruel twist, the rising cost of college and their own meager finances are leaving many aspiring students, quite literally, out in the cold. Lee Cowan reports our cover story. You wouldn't know it by looking, but on college campuses all around the country, there are students working to get their degrees who don't know where they're going to sleep tonight or where to get their next meal. I think the idea that hardworking, talented people who are trying to get an education are being derailed by homelessness is a crisis. Homeless and hungry in college. Later on Sunday morning. Unheard of and unheard until just a few years ago. Podcasts are just about everywhere these days. David Pogue takes a look inside the podcast phenomenon. Steve Hartman watches a wrestler win by losing. We'll also dig into the history of the English Channel Tunnel. And more, all coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues. The College Board says that for a typical student, even a low budget for living expenses comes to almost $17,000 a year, with housing making up nearly half the cost. No part-time job could ever put a dent in that, which may explain why more and more students are finding themselves out in the cold. Our cover story is reported by Lee Cowan. Jasmine Bigham, a college senior, can almost taste graduation. Like most students here at Humboldt State University, nestled in the shade of the California Redwoods, finals are coming, and she's studying hard. But it's her life outside her college classroom that may be the toughest test of all. The hardest thing was just like not being able to find housing 
And so that was like the big issue that stood in my so way. So what'd you do? I lived in my car and then I kind of couch surfed. After that, I moved into like this big trailer and then the trailer roof collapsed a little bit. All of that makes the van she now lives in seem not so bad. Yes, a van. She lives here in a parking lot, not far from the library. Here is where I keep all my like bathroom supplies. And then here is where I keep like my pots and pans. Being homeless isn't something you'd expect from a student on a Ford Family Foundation scholarship. But even that money wasn't enough to help with the high cost of housing near campus. There was some like emotional points, you know, where I just was like crying because it was hard. I like, you know, how I think about things is like, I put myself here, so I had to deal with it. But you put yourself here for a good reason, though, to get through school. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's a goal at the end of the tunnel, I guess. Every morning, she makes her way to a women's locker room on campus. Here, she brushes her teeth, showers, and then heads off to class. Later, it's back to the van. What is it that's so important for you to go to school and get your degree that you'd sort of put yourself through all of this? You know, like, I'm going to go become something, and I'm going to succeed in it and keep trying. You know, if things are hard, like, you just got to keep trying. The number of homeless college students struggling, just like Jasmine, is hard to quantify. But it's big. According to financial aid applications, there are more than 68,000 students who claim to be homeless. I think the idea that hardworking, talented people who are trying to get an education are being derailed by homelessness is a crisis. Sarah Goldrick-Rabb is the leading national researcher on the problem. She's founder of the Hope Center and a professor of higher education policy at Temple University in Philadelphia. One of the things that's changed in the United States over time is that if you grow up without money, we have sent a pretty strong signal to those students that financial aid is available and you should try college because it's your route out of poverty. So part of the problem is that people who weren't going to college before... Go to college now. It's hard to view that as a problem. I'd say the problem is that they're going to college but we didn't build the support for them. Unlike elementary and secondary school students whose families can get some support from things like federal free breakfast and lunch programs, for college students, much of that assistance dries up. Every time you tell people about this problem, they seem surprised right. and shocked. Right, exactly. I mean, it, it, it's been hidden. I think a lot of people didn't talk about it. I also think that um, most people just think about tuition. They don't think about living. Some of those struggling with housing responded to a recent survey that Goldrick Rabb conducted. It was the largest of its kind ever done, involving more than 43,000 students at 66 institutions. The result? Nearly one in 10 college students said they were homeless in the last year, meaning they had at least one night where they didn't know where they were going to sleep. I tend to think the people who are struggling the most are not taking our surveys. And that's the part that scares me, right, is the possibility. But you don't know how deep the problem really the, is. The problem is actually a lot worse. Colleges generally don't like to talk about homelessness, she says, and neither do most students. Dom Cornell is a 22-year-old undergraduate at DePaul University in Chicago. I didn't want anybody to look at me different. So you just kept it to yourself? Yeah. Um, there's that underlying feeling of just shame. That, that feeling of loneliness. He's studying political science with the hopes of one day going to law school. My dad never went to college. My mom never went to college. I'd be the first person. 
I knew I had to do it. Dom's parents have been out of the picture since childhood. His mom had struggled with addiction, and his dad has been in and out of prison. Money for his tuition comes from a patchwork of funding, scholarships, student loans, and some financial aid. He stretched all of that as far as he could. But last spring, he found himself living in a shelter outside of town. Sometimes you don't make it to the shelter in time because you, know, you have to be there at a certain time to get in. Sometimes I had to sleep uh, in parks and in forests. How often would you go hungry? Like two days without really eating a meal. Two days? I hate to say it, but I've eaten out of the trash before. When you're just trying to survive, you'll do whatever it takes. He had to sneak onto a commuter train just to get to class most days. And one day, it almost became too much to bear. As passionate as I was about my classes and about the things I was learning about, it just, it just got too hard to be homeless. I remember I was standing on the, the platform of the L train and honestly, I thought about jumping, you know, just giving up. What kept you from jumping? I think it was knowing very well that there are a lot more kids like me. DePaul USA, a national homeless charity, has seen the problem all across the country and in Chicago started a homeless housing program called DOCS, designed just for students. At least this house, where it could offer at least a half a dozen students a low-cost place to stay, as long as they keep up their grades and do chores around the house. A lot of these students either had a place to call home and lost it or never had a place to call home ever. Abe Morris, the director here, has never forgotten the day Dom came asking for help. He came into my office and um, I said, hey, have you eaten today? He's like, you know what, let's go get lunch. And in the middle of the lunch, he stopped eating. He said, Abe, I'm sorry, I, I can't eat no more because I don't eat that often. My stomach is shrinking, I can't eat that much food. And at that point, it hit me like, oh my gosh, like this, this guy needs someplace to go now. So. Abe converted an office into one more bedroom, an act that very likely saved Dom's life. It's still surreal to me. It's, I still wake up sometimes and it's like, well, I'm here. Even now still? Yeah, even now. I feel like a weight has lifted off my shoulders. Like I can concentrate on my glasses. I made it on the Dean's list. Congrats. I had never done so well during a college quarter. You never had the stability before. That's all I needed. Homelessness is indiscriminate. It can affect anyone anywhere. Sarah Goldrick Rabb has found students struggling all across the country, from big universities to rural colleges. There are middle class people going through these problems, and they're going through them for the very first time in college. Most people don't realize the research on homelessness indicates that one of the guiding factors contributing to homelessness is just bad luck. Luck isn't something most educators can spot, even if they see these struggling students every day. I remember walking across campus one day and a young man walked up to me and he says, I am, are you the college president? And I said, yes, I am. He says, well, I want to talk to you because I live under a freeway. And he ended by saying, and I want you to know that there are other students on campus just like me. Catherine Jeffrey is president of Santa Monica College in Los Angeles. It doesn't offer housing, but the school has tried to address students who are going hungry by offering food pantries, like this one. 
So we have a variety of canned beans and ravioli and, of course, peanut butter. All the college staples. All the college staples. <laughs> While helpful, they're not the healthiest options. So students worked with administrators to organize this farmer's market. Hey, potato! Where fresh fruits and vegetables are handed out each week. Thank you. No questions asked. But perhaps the most innovative idea came from UCLA students, who, with the help of donations and grants, set up the Students for Student Shelter in a Santa Monica church. So this is our kitchen. It's completely run by more than 80 student volunteers, like Jordan Vega. We have four student volunteers um, from UCLA who are on site every day. We cook dinner for the residents, we eat together, and we really bond with each other. It's a community. It's a community. Maritza Lopez knows she was lucky to get in. There's a waiting list of at least 100 yeah, students. So that's my bed right there. She's studying art history at nearby Santa Monica College and shares this small room with nine other homeless students. As small as it is, it's co-ed. So you don't have a lot of privacy here, though, do you? I think it's pretty private. I can't really ask for too much because I'm already, I've been given a lot. Because the students who run it also have to go to class, the shelter has to empty out from 7 in the morning all the way until 7 at night. Usually, Maritza passes that time by studying on campus. I always kind of say, hey, let me think about today and tomorrow. How am I going to survive? Like, what can I do today? What can I do tomorrow? So where does all that optimism come from? I don't know. <laughs> Got a little soul in here, right? <laughs> Give um, a big soul, I think. <laughs> this past June, Maritza got her associate's degree, graduating with honors. It's good. It's not high honors, but <laughs> it's... You say that like you're shy about it. That's fantastic. It hurts, though, like, knowing that what if I did have a place to live? I could have done way better than what I'm doing now. Maritza is now out of that shelter, and she's working on her bachelor's at her dream school, UCLA which is covering her tuition. It was the volunteers at the Students for Student Shelter who helped hook her up with cheap housing near campus. As for Jasmine Bigham, she and her van have finally left that parking lot. Last month, she graduated from Humboldt State with a degree in kinesiology with hopes of becoming either a teacher or an athletic trainer. We will likely never know just how many homeless students start college, but and have to leave without their degrees. An elusive statistic that Dom Cornell says is actually a loss for everyone. You don't want to be looked at as, oh, there goes that homeless college kid. We're future lawyers. We're future doctors and future politicians and nurses and teachers. We may be homeless, but we're a lot more than that, too. From Dover comes the heartening news that a channel tunnel is certain. And now a page from our Sunday Morning Almanac, January 20th, 1986, 33 years ago today. The day British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and French President Francois Mitterrand broke new ground. The United Kingdom and France have decided today on the basis of reports by experts to link their two countries by a twin bore tunnel. 
Although an English Channel tunnel between Britain and France was a long-standing dream, reality had forced would-be travelers to rely on ferries or anything else that came to mind. But by the mid-20th century, the Channel Tunnel began to take shape, if only in miniature. Soon after that joint 1986 announcement, construction began for real. And when the British and French tunneling crews first met in the middle in 1990, it was very big news. The first time anyone has been able to walk between Britain and France since the Ice Age melted 8,000 years ago. In 1994, the tunnel was completed, with Queen Elizabeth and President Mitterrand sharing the first ride in a Rolls-Royce carried on a train. As the train hurtled along at 90 miles an hour, 40 yards below the channel. 31 miles long, 23 miles of it underwater, the channel tunnel, or channel for short, is a crucial link, both real and symbolic, between Britain and France carrying high-speed trains between London and the continent. How its role might change in the wake of Britain's bitter Brexit debate remains unclear. Order, the house must calm itself. Zen. Since, as of now, there's no light at the end of that tunnel. Mr. Speaker, the House has spoken and the government will listen. It's official. Podcast pandemonium is definitely a thing. With David Pogue, we listen up. Quiet, please. In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. You may have heard people refer to the 1930s and 40s as the golden age of radio. Well, today, we're living in the golden age of podcasts. Old Spuddy make that chewy gooey like a bowl of stewy taboo. Peter had all the makings of a modern man. A podcast is like a pre-recorded radio show that you can listen to on your phone as you commute, do errands, cook, or work out. Podcasts are available on demand. So in the same way you can go watch Netflix shows anytime you want, you can listen to our podcast anytime you want. Alex Blumberg and Matt Lieber are the co-founders of Gimlet Media, yeah, so these are our studios. which they hope to build into the HBO of podcast studios. Its 120 employees produce 24 podcast shows in 13 state-of-the-art recording studios. Podcasts are free, paid for by ads or sponsorship. I think she had so much less power. There are a lot of podcasts. At last count, over 630,000 different podcasts on every conceivable topic. All right, well, I'm going to search right now knitting. Are you? Okay, here we go. We have like a lot of knitting podcasts. There's the knitting pipeline. There's two U's. Never not knitting. Never not knitting. Never not knitting. Here we go. Hi, this is Alana, and you're listening to the Never Not Knitting Podcast. There you go. <laughs> the shows that are popular right now go across all categories. A president is impeachable if he attempts to subvert the Constitution. People love crime. They love true crime. I knew I had one bullet left. I shot him again. There's also more kids' shows these days. Welcome back to Chompers, your morning and night toothbrushing show. News is a bigger category, so the New York Times Daily is one of the most popular shows. On Monday. Ah, yes, The Daily. The wildly popular 25-minute news podcast that the New York Times releases every morning at 6 a.m. This 
is The Daily. The Daily has turned host Michael Barbaro into a minor celebrity. When I bump into people on the subway and they say, are you Michael, do you host The Daily? I want to know everything about how they listen, when they listen, when it fits into people's lives. They have such a strong connection to the show. What are the elements that have made The Daily such a hit? I think it's the way we choose to tell stories. So what is happening today? The curtain is removed. It's you, it's us. We're telling you about our process. You're hearing how we search for the news and our own uncertainty sometimes as we're kind of grasping at the truth and figuring it out. She has all these details of like what it's been like inside the Justice Department, so I feel like... People are saying that right now is peak podcast. Yes. What is going on? Everybody has these smartphones in their lives. And I think the quality of podcasts has just soared. With all con artists and everything. These days, most of the popular podcasts are produced by large companies. But there's still plenty of room for the little guy. We get about 15,000 downloads a month, which to me seems great because we have no marketing, no advertising, you know, no promotional stuff at all, just word of mouth from people who listen all the time. Ken and Martha Wiseman are retired teachers and the creators of the RV Navigator podcast, where they talk about the motorhome lifestyle. We just sit down and wherever we are, we can sit on our bed. <laughs> we can sit in the RV, we can sit here, and it's just a matter of finding a quiet talking. place. So here we are in our lavish studios. But mostly, they record their podcast, People where else, in their RV. Hello, dear listeners. Where we the entire studio consists of a microphone and a computer. In a campground near you. If you're in Titusville, Florida. Yes. The Wiseman's podcast doesn't play ads and doesn't make any money. They get a different kind of reward for their efforts. We always end our podcast with, we hope to see you in a campground near us. And it's amazing that we do get people seeing us in a campground near them. We will run into somebody who maybe takes us out to lunch and talks to us about good things to see and do in their area, and it's really enriched our lives. Last year alone, 200,000 new podcasts made their debuts. Advertisers are expected to double the amount they spend on podcasts by 2020, and 44% of Americans say they've listened to a podcast. Plus, at least a dozen podcasts are now being adapted into TV shows, including Lore, Two Dope Queens, Serial, and Homecoming. But, then again, but deep down, as the Times' Michael Barbaro points out, podcasts are still just a new spin on a very old idea. The beauty of it is that it's been made new in a very kind of urgent and lovely way. Sometimes you really can win by losing. Steve Hartman has the story of good sports. Get a piece of us! Get a piece of us! As a state champion wrestler, Merrick Bush has very few real competitors. But the sophomore from Central Valley Academy near Utica, New York, does have at least one rival, a junior from Indian River named Logan Patterson. Merrick met him on the mat earlier this month. I practiced hard that entire week, and I wanted to beat him. Terry Kavanaugh was the referee. I've been in sports a long time, and I've never seen anything like it. As expected, it was a great match. Until, with just about 30 seconds left, Logan twisted his elbow. No, oh my God. Up to that point, Merrick had been losing. But Logan's arm was now so badly injured, there was almost no way Merrick couldn't win. So he told his coach, I got this and went back in to do what he says he had to do. That's Merrick in the blue. 
Again, all he had to do was stand up and pin his hobbled opponent. But instead, Merrick did nothing. He just told Logan he was sorry about his arm and surrendered. Logan couldn't believe it. He just sat there. He didn't move. You think it was goodness out of his heart. He's a great person. I know it makes me look kind of like a weakling, but... No. That's all right. No, it doesn't. No, he's no weakling at all. I mean, state championships come and go, but that, you can't take that away from a kid. The crowd watched on their feet and through blurry eyes as Merrick lost the tournament but won the admiration of everyone in the gym. Most especially... Proud. Yeah. His dad. Yep. Bob. Very proud. It's not about winning all the time. It's about doing what's right. And he did. More importantly, Merrick thought doing the right thing would make him look like a weakling. But he did it anyway. Now that's a powerful kid. I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next Sunday morning. Stephen Colbert here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is our podcast. I'm here with my producer, Becca. Becca, what can people expect on the podcast? The extended moments, for sure. Where can people get that? On The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert, wherever you get your podcasts. I use the internet.